This is Sam Swartz with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful, rainy downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Tommy Thompson, president of the UW system and former Republican governor of Wisconsin, is pushing back against the Republican-led state legislature's attempts to block COVID rules on campuses. Thompson told reporters today he would not follow a directive to seek legislative approval for COVID-19 rules. That legislative directive, passed earlier this month, requires the UW to vet new public health protocols, including rules on testing and mask mandates, with the Legislative Rules Committee. In a press release issued today, Thompson wrote that, quote, the UW system is not required to seek political approval for every in- internal management decision, nor should it, unquote. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports Thompson vowed to take the fight to the state Supreme Court if necessary. Milwaukee Mayor Tom Barrett is mandating that Milwaukee City employees get vaccinated by the end of October or face unpaid suspensions and termination. Channel 3 reports that the mandate applies to temporary employees and interns, but not yet to unionized city workers, including those in police and fire unions. Union negotiations will be needed to require vaccinations for Milwaukee police and firefighters. The policy does not include exemptions based on medical or religious criteria and provides up to two hours of paid leave to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. Meanwhile, this month, the city of Madison, as well as Dane County, announced that city and county workers will need to get the vaccine or undergo weekly testing. Madison's school board will be considering COVID-19 vaccination requirements for staff at its meeting next Monday. That's a reversal from just one week ago when spokesperson Tim Lamons told the Cap Times that no such vaccine mandate for school staff was being considered. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that nearly 90% of all MMSD teachers support a COVID vaccine requirement. Those numbers come from a poll conducted by Madison Teachers Incorporated, the union representing MMSD teachers. Currently, the COVID-19 vaccine is only authorized for students over the age of 12. Capron Walker, a Madison High School student, has won a national award for constructing his own lightsaber. Once referred to as a, quote, elegant weapon from a more civilized age, the lightsaber is a favored tool of the Jedi Knights in the Star Wars films. Walker's saber won him a gold medal at the NAACP's Afro-Academic, Cultural, Technological, and Scientific Olympics. The Associated Press reports that it took Walker 18 months to design and build the lightsaber. Congrats. And now for your daily COVID-19 numbers. The Wisconsin Department of Health Services reports that the state's seven-day average of new cases now stands at 1,369 cases per day. That's the highest seven-day average since January 28th. And now on to today's top stories. At its meeting yesterday, Madison's Art Commission shelved a proposal to limit amplified music at Madison's streeteries. The decision came after a heated exchange between commissioners, community members, and the Alder sponsoring the measure. Reporter Nate Wegahut has the details. A proposed resolution to limit amplified music at outdoor streeteries was recommended to be shelved last night by the Madison Arts Commission. 
The resolution would have prohibited outdoor amplified music at streeteries within 100 feet of residential dwellings. Under Madison's streetery program, restaurants and other certain venues are allowed to expand seating outdoors. The program was approved by the city in June 2020, and it allowed restaurants to continue operating under public health capacity limits. In May of this year, the city council passed a measure permitting streeteries to host amplified music, allowing for more outdoor music concerts during the pandemic. Alder Brian Benford, the sole sponsor of the resolution, represents a large part of downtown on the Madison Common Council. He says the residents who live next to the streeteries may be bothered by the loud performances. Benford said at yesterday's Art Commission meeting that some people may move next to a streetery without realizing they can also host live music. Here's the difference, folks, that I know that that's part of the ambience of where I live. I've made that decision, but these folks had no input. The new resolution comes after an incident with the Harmony Bar and Grill, a local restaurant and music venue which recently opened their streetery on their back patio, where they host musical performances three nights a week. But critics say the new resolution would have unfairly punished all streeteries for the actions of a single restaurant. Last night's Art Commission meeting turned into a heated exchange between those opposing and supporting the resolution. Harmony bar owner Brennan Nardi says that they attempted to reach out to Alder Benford to resolve the debate weeks ago, but Benford never returned their message. While I think I didn't handle the situation perfectly, I just wanted to point out that I received an email from Brian on July 22nd. I responded on July 22nd that I would absolutely meet with the group, um, that that week I had family in town, but I would please let me know when and where you'd like to meet. This was on July 22nd. I never heard anything from Brian after that. Speaking with WORT Today, Nardi said that she had never even been aware of the resolution until about a week ago. I was not aware of the ordinance until I received a phone call from uh, the Wisconsin State Journal. Nardi also says that she understands the issues with the neighbors, but thinks that it should not limit all streeteries in the city. You know, this is a dispute or a misunderstanding between several neighbors um, who have valid concerns and the small business that's located next to them. The impact of this ordinance would be so much greater and is so unnecessary. Approximately 30 streeteries would be affected by the new resolution. That's nearly all of the streeteries with an amplified music permit. Benford says that he didn't realize his resolution would encompass that many streeteries, but he still has to think about the residents in his neighborhood. I didn't know that it impacted this many places, and that never, never was my intent. I want to say that as clearly as I can. But on the same token, as I looked at the data and that amazing, informative presentation, I didn't see anything about, once again, uh, maybe it's like a two-issue thing in my mind, but how do these folks get peace? Benford said that, at its core, citizens not having to deal with new levels of noise for the sake of economic interests is a larger issue. For example, it's something that's also at stake in the ongoing fight against F-35 fighter jets. Ultimately, the commission decided that a single instance should not form new policy. A resolution to be placed on file will head to the Common Council next week. From WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout.
Today, a group of about 50 folks gathered outside the state capitol building to protest Enbridge's Line 3 oil pipeline. The project, which is currently making its way through northern Minnesota, has attracted controversy and condemnation from environmentalists and tribal rights activists. Our producer, Jonah Chester, was on the scene today and brings us the story. As the heat built to an uncomfortable peak earlier this afternoon, a group of about 50 people rallied outside the state capitol building. They were protesting Enbridge Inc., a Canadian energy infrastructure corporation, and its Line 3 oil pipeline project. Tim Corden is an organizer with Building Unity, a social justice organization. He says Madison's demonstrators will be joining a caravan on its way to St. Paul, where protesters from across Wisconsin plan to join the final stretch of a mass action. And tomorrow there's a big regional mass action in St. Paul. Well, since August 7th, a group of uh, people have been walking for the water from the White Earth Nation, where the pipeline crosses the White Earth Nation. And that walk has gone over 250 miles. They're walking to the state capitol. And that's why we're going to St. Paul today because we want to be there tomorrow morning to join them for their last mile and a half. Tribal rights groups and environmentalists argue that Enbridge trampled tribal rights and lands during the construction of the Line 3 pipeline. Enbridge says that replacing its current Line 3, which is more than 50 years old, is essential for bringing oil into the U.S. and continuing operations in the country. Pressure has been mounting for Enbridge to drop the project, which Minnesota Public Radio reports is nearly 90% complete. Demonstrations have at times turned violent as protesters clash with authorities. Jill Ferguson says she's been arrested at the demonstrations three separate times. Speaking at today's action, Ferguson criticized Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers for his approval of a 2019 bill that made it a felony to trespass on oil pipelines. Portions of Line 3 run through northwestern Wisconsin, as do parts of Enbridge's Oil Pipeline 5. So right now, I would have six felony counts on me for doing what I did in Minnesota. That's not okay. That is opening the door to felonize any type of protesting. Mother Jones reports that a coalition of Democratic U.S. lawmakers are pushing President Joe Biden to suspend permits for Line 3 until further environmental impact reviews can be conducted. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. It's now 617 right on the dot, and you're listening to the live local news right here on WORT. In 2017, the city of Madison launched the Madison Addiction Recovery Initiative, or MARI. Aimed at combating Madison's ongoing opioid epidemic, the program offers addiction recovery treatment for those arrested for nonviolent drug-related crimes. As part of the program, the city partnered with researchers at UW-Madison. Now, that UW research group has released their initial findings on the program's efficacy. For more, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Veronica White, a Ph.D. student and MARI researcher. 
So you, alongside a coalition of other UW researchers and professors, have been crunching the numbers and data for Madison's Addiction Recovery Initiative, or MARI. Just by way of background, can you explain what that program is? What is MARI? So yeah, MARI is an arrest diversion program for nonviolent drug-related crimes. And so someone that commits a drug-related offense can then be referred to MARI, which allows them to take an assessment for substance use disorder and then receive associated treatments for six months. Um, And as you can imagine, that requires a whole lot of collaboration between a bunch of different um, groups and individuals. And so Mari's core team is between uh, safe communities of Madison and Dane County, the Madison Police Department, along with Family uh, Medicine and Community Health from UW, Dane County Human Services, Connections Counseling, and Public Health, Madison, and Dane County. And there's several other collaborators that uh, are involved as well to make this kind of possible, uh, including like the city attorney and um, EMS providers and more. And I understand your team over at the UW, the folks who are kind of the crunching the numbers behind this project to see how efficient it is, uh, just published your findings in the journal Drug and Alcohol Dependence. Can you just give me a, a sort of a brief abstract what have your has your research into this project detailed? Yeah, so this is just one of the studies that the MARI team is going to be doing um, to look at the program's effectiveness. Um, and specifically, what we're looking at, so me and my team at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the Industrial and Systems Engineering Department, uh, we were looking at how does MARI affect six-month recidivism? And what that means is the rate at which arrested individuals that are eligible for the MARI program are then rearrested within a six-month period from that initial MARI-eligible arrest. And so what's really unique about what we, were, what we were able to find out here is that we're actually able to draw causal effects and not just associations um, between the MARI program and the program outcomes. Um, and so we're able to do that through using causal inference um, and causal analysis. And we specifically measured three different things. So the first one is um, assignment to the MARI program, and we found that assignment alone or referral to the MARI program alone may not reduce that six-month recidivism. However, we, we did find that completion of the MARI program may reduce that six-month recidivism. So what we can kind of draw from that is that there needs to be more in place to support those that are enrolled in the MARI program to ensure completion. And what's really exciting is MARI's evolved kind of into MARI with two A's, and so that's what's currently operating in Dane County right now. And in this MARI 2.0, as they kind of call it, or MARI with two A's, um, they're actually using very different mechanisms from that first one because of what we kind of have learned here. So, for example, they have quick response teams that follow up with individuals to make sure that they're, you know, engaging in this referral process and, you know, this treatment process along the way. Um, and, you know, they've, there's been many different changes along the way to different policies to ensure that people don't just get dropped off for different reasons, you know, such as if someone's referred to, like, like detox, um, what that involves is, you know, somebody physically being in a detox facility for a certain amount of time for several days. And if something's working a job, it, you know, they can't, that's not really feasible for them. So like changing kind of the policies to make sure that, you know, it meets people where it makes sense so that we have a higher completion rate of MARI. And the third thing that we looked at was we use Compiler Average Causal Analysis or CASE. And what that does is we found that for individuals that would complete the MARI program, referrals to MARI may actually reduce six-month recidivism. So that could mean connecting more people that are likely to complete MARI. So 
in the new MARI program that we have this also self-referral arc, so it doesn't have to just be people that are arrested for a drug-related crime, but it could be anyone that's seeking help and wants access to this kind of programming. And, you know, right there, that's, that's a great place where that case analysis really shines is because it shows that, you know, these people want help, you know, they're self-referring to the program, therefore, you know, it's more likely that they'll actually, you know, have those reduced rates or potentially reduce their future the crime rates. What years did you look at for that? Because I know this program sort of started in earnest in 2017. Did you take a wholesale look at the program from 2017 until 2021? Or what was your time stretch for your data set you were looking at? Yeah, so this analysis involves two different data sets. So we use this um, historical comparison group, which was between September 2015 to September 2016. Then we used the MARI group, which started in September of 2017. And we used everyone that was in that first MARI program, which ran through August of 2020. Um, so yes, this includes everyone that was in that original MARI program. Um, and we're also using that historical comparison group. And what the his- historical comparison group is, is people that would have qualified for the MARI program if it had existed between September 1st, 2015 and August 2016. Now, looking out beyond the boundaries of, uh, of Madison and Dane County here, how common is this type of investigation into the effectiveness of these diversion programs? You know, you know, diversionary programs for folks who are incarcerated are not certainly not unique to Madison. They're across the country. But how common is it for researchers to get this granular about the data and use that to inform future decision making for the projects? I would say this is the first of its kind that's actually tried to do a causal analysis of a diversion program. And yeah, it's not very common at all, unfortunately. I think the people that are, you know, the great, wonderful community leaders, you know, their focus is on helping people, you know, getting people the help that they need. And that's what they're good at, right? So what was really important, I think, in our group and what really allowed us to learn from each other, both as researchers and as practitioners, was uh, we were involved kind of from that beginning. I, I've been attending market meetings since like 2018, I think. And I've been working on this data set and um, this analysis. I've done preliminary versions of this even back in 2019 for the team themselves, not so much to publish. But, you know, and being there from the beginning and really getting to know what kind of data they're collecting and how it can be better collected was crucial for us as researchers. And it was also crucial to build trust with that team. But it was also I think what's really important for other initiatives or other program managers is to get those researchers more involved in what they're doing day to day, like have them go and sit in and see the processes and um, what's going on and have them sit in and on meetings, you know, and even work through some of the data collection so they can really fully understand and, you know, you have a better back and forth between, okay, how are we going to evaluate this and what's actually going on and how can that be improved based on that analysis? So for our final few minutes here, I'd actually like to zoom out a little bit away from the MARI program Mm -hmm. in particular, because I find your dissertation area and your area of study particularly interesting. That's your work on the opioid crisis and its impact here in Dane County and various mitigations and their efficacy in fighting that epidemic. As you likely know, and as a lot of our listeners likely know, the pandemic has amplified the opioid crisis, or at least Mm -hmm. preliminary data from the state's Department of Health Services indicates that it has. So with that in mind, what has the past year and a half looked like for you, and what impact has the pandemic had on on your research, both with MARI and uh, beyond? So as a PhD student, I've been starting to work on some other projects that are also surrounded by the opioid crisis, and kind of like that bigger, broader picture of like, okay, what next? And 
So specifically what I'm working on right now is I'm using a discrete event simulation that kind of models Dane County uh, as a whole and particularly people that use opioids uh, within Dane County and how they kind of move throughout treatment and through jail and prison and through hospitals. So what does that kind of look like? And ultimately what I'm trying to figure or trying to determine from that research is how does a program like MARI ultimately or could potentially impact um, the overall Dane County system and what other types of programming could best um, mitigate, you know, how many overdoses and deaths and, you know, reduce people's active opioid use in general. So that's what I've been kind of working on. How the pandemic has kind of disrupted this research and uh, more generally, for one, you know, people just aren't really meeting in person as much. And so it's much more this virtual world. It's much harder to, it has been much harder to um, like go and see exactly what's been going on and, you know, meet with new people and uh, things like that. Cause it's not quite the same in this virtual environment. However, things are starting to kind of change with that too, which is exciting. And uh, for Mari in general, I know um, the program, especially the last six months of this program had a really hard time following up with people. You know, they had kind of made some changes along the way to get more people engaged and keep them engaged. And they struggled, you know, in more of this virtual world and unknowns of like what they can and can't do and what, you know, what the risks are with COVID and everything. So yeah, the program struggled a little bit and it was in general, it, like, you know, different adaptions had to be made and the team pulled through and, you know, we still saw really great effectiveness even amid uh, the COVID disrupting things. So that's really encouraging and exciting. So my future work will also kind of look at how can decision makers and police departments actually start incorporating these different programs and, you know, different scheduling and including mental health professionals in their work. So like how many mental health staff to hire and where should they be located? Should they, should they coordinate with a separate facility and then have them meet them at locations? Oftentimes when an opioid arrest happens, it's a very high and intense situation, um, right? And not all the time are police like adequately equipped to handle the mental health status of who's involved. And what Mari's really helped do is engage some of those mental health professionals and in, in those arresting processes so that they're uh, much smoother and they can help with referrals and, you know, engage and talk to them about Mari from not like that law enforcement perspective, but more from that like um, mental health and healthcare perspective of, you know, this is your healthcare. We want to get you better. So in the future, yeah, looking at how to, how police departments should decide to maybe include some of those mental health professionals in their practices. Veronica, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join me and talk about your research. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you for reaching out. Veronica White is a PhD student at UW-Madison and a researcher with Madison's Addiction Recovery Initiative, or MARI. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. We look ahead to UW-Madison's fall semester on Cardinal Call, Wildlife Weekly talks Blue Jay rehabilitation, and Radio Astrology diagnoses a break in the Milwaukee, or excuse me, Wisconsin brain, Milky Way galaxy. But now we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash.
The time is 6.32 right now, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. Thanks for joining me. Every other Tuesday, we check in with the staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to get the latest news from the campus. This week, producer Hope Carnup and editor-in-chief Addison Lathers look back on the strange 2020-2021 school year and ahead to a fall semester that's hopefully going to be a bit more normal. Welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by our editor-in-chief, Addison Lathers, to preview the fall semester and take a look back at last year. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Hope. So let's start with where we've been the past year. We've had a whirlwind of a year, especially with COVID um, and conversations about racial and social justice. What were some of the stories we reported last year that stood out to you? Oh, we did some great reporting on the founding of the UW BIPOC coalition of a lot of movements within our student council to try to hold our university accountable and to get additional aid for students that were struggling with housing issues and housing crises. It was a big year for us on the reporting end. We also reported on students that were experiencing COVID after already having COVID. Uh, Several students tested positive after previously testing positive, and we were one of the first people to pick up on that. It was it was an interesting year for our student publication. Mm hmm. Yeah, looking ahead to this year, especially with the COVID situation, how do you think things might be different or the same going into fall, thinking about where we were with dorms being quarantined two semesters ago now? I mean, how do you think things will change going into this year? It feels a lot less prepared. Last year, we had our smart restart that was, you know, maybe it wasn't the smartest restart, but we had a plan. This year, it seems weird. We don't have our like badger badges anymore to show that we're COVID negative. We don't really have a great idea of what even the symptoms of COVID-19 are anymore. We have a mask mandate, but we don't really have a lot of information on vaccines and how many people will have them. It's really unclear right now. All we really have numbers on are the students that are living in dorms. We don't know what to expect and professors feel the same. They don't really know what's going to meet them in their classrooms this year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what other topics about campus and student life do you think readers should expect to hear about from us this year? I think we'll see a lot of student orgs that were struggling over this past year either have a really strong resurgence or struggle to get kids out and active. It's going to be an interesting social and educational atmosphere. Who's going to really want to commit to classes when at any moment they could be pushed back online? It's going to be it's going to be real touch and go. But I think we're either going to see a really strong turnout first from students in every aspect of life or we're going to see a really conservative turnout, if that's one way to put it. Mm hmm. Yeah, so you have a background in city news. Um, How do you think the relationship between campus and the city of Madison will continue to evolve um, throughout the next year? That's a really interesting question. I thought it would be a lot more hostile by now, to be honest. But we had something this year that's 
we haven't seen before, which is UW-Madison pushing for masks before the county did. And that's interesting. It was always the reverse. And so maybe we'll see a bit of trust building between the students and our outer community. Uh, Or at least I hope that's what we're going to see. I hope that we've learned lessons from last year. But, you know, that's to be seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are some of the things you see facing the UW administration going into this year? I guess with COVID as well as just how students um, reacted to everything that was going on last year. We're all seeing a weird amount of hostility right now. I don't know if you've been reading the comments of like UW-Madison's like social media posts, Instagram posts, but it's students that are angry about a lot of things. And they're all angry about different things. Students are being are upset that they're being forced to wear masks. Students are being upset that there's no vaccine mandate for students. So it's it's anger on both sides and it's really interesting to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, we'll continue reporting all of this um, as the semester begins. So I guess looking forward to the next few weeks, we're going to be starting to publish again soon. Um, So just wondering what your vision is for the Cardinal going forward and what the community will see from us this year that you're excited about. I am so excited to be back in print this year. I think we've all missed seeing it on stands. We've missed seeing the Isthmus on stands. It's just, it's been empty, and I'm really excited to be putting out content again. We are going to be switching to monthly print in an effort to save paper and create content that we think is more valuable and more in tune to what students want to see. I think that's going to be really cool to see how that turns out. Um, Right now, our next publication date is actually September 9th. We will be putting out our welcome back issue, um, a kind of look into what we think our fall semester is going to look like and what freshmen and students returning to campus um, can expect to see this fall. I believe I can also make a small announcement. Uh, Well, small announcement. The Daily Cardinal will be partnering with a reputable nonprofit journalism institute this fall to make our action project. We will be announcing our topic soon, but I am very excited to see what comes out of this amazing campus and nonprofit partnership to produce what is sure to be our most anticipated and impressive issue of the fall semester. Mm -hmm. Yeah, looking back to last year's action projects, can you share what those were and how they contributed to conversations about different issues on campus and in the community? Yeah, we actually postponed one of our topics from a previous year, politics and protest, to this past year, and that change of scheduling turned out to be Perfect. We put together that action project during our fall semester when a lot of student orgs were doing some of the most amazing, impressive advocacy efforts that we've seen in a while, I think, on campus. So that was truly one of my favorite issues, I would say, of that past year. And like I said, we just hope to keep putting out equally impressive action projects. So one of the best things about our student paper, in my opinion, is that We have so many students that we can talk to for stories. You know, if it's someone's roommate, if it's someone that they go to class with, we can talk and get the reactions immediately to whatever news is going on on campus. How do you see the voices of students coming through in our publication? And why do you think that's important for the community to hear? I think so often in publications, in local publications, you know, surrounding area, Madison area publications, Students get grouped together in this identification as UW-Madison. It's the administration and the students, we're all one, and it's just the university and our actions 
are all seen as just one entity. And that's just not the case, especially in a public health crisis. There's going to be differentiation. What's happening at the administration level is not what's happening in like the campus community itself. And having a student publication like ours as a source for that, seeing what the students are saying themselves, it can be so important. And it can also be, I think, a huge help to residents and even the people that are covering our campus for other publications that aren't student sources. It's important to know that we, our voices are very real and they're worth noting and they can be signifiers of upcoming change. Yeah, is there anything else you'd like to share about where the Cardinal is headed and what folks should expect to see from us this coming year? I know that I am excited to see what our news team does this year. It seems like we've just been getting more impressive semester after semester after semester, and now we get to really look back and put together all this experience that a lot of our team has been gaining over the past two years into one of our most seasoned news teams that we've ever had. And I'm excited. I'm really excited to see the content we put out, the stories we uncover, and, you know, just the great things about campus that we can put into print. Great. Well, thanks for helping us preview the upcoming semester. One more question for you. What are you most excited about for fall as it comes around the corner? Oh, gosh. Oh, that's a big question. Well, obviously, I said I'm already super excited to start putting our print issues together. But you know what, Hope? I am also super excited to see what you do on our podcast team. (laughs) I hope to be on more of your upcoming shows. Great. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. Yeah, absolutely. And that's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com or download our app. You can also find links to our podcast, The Student Dive, on our website. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. In this episode of Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg talks about blue jays and what it takes to rehabilitate a, rehabilitate a bird species known for its tricky and intelligent nature. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg and I'm the Wildlife Training Supervisor for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about blue jays, but also blue jays and their enrichment in rehabilitation. So blue jays are probably one of the coolest species that we get to work with as rehabilitators, and they're very common here in the state of Wisconsin. We had a group of three blue jays over the last uh, couple of months here at our wildlife center, All of them had come in with various different injuries or they had been orphaned for some reason where their parents weren't around as nestlings to be able to feed them. Uh, And one of those was actually a cat bite injury, meaning that it had come to the ground and a cat had been outside um, and happened to predate upon the bird, something that happens very commonly, unfortunately, during the breeding season. So it was a blue jay that we were able to treat, um, although unfortunately it was a situation where it had been kept by the finder for about a week. And it made me think, you know, we should talk about how certain birds have critical periods where it's really important that they have natural 
development, natural surroundings, enrichment, and, you know, how do you make the best of a situation like that for an animal that is incredibly smart? So blue jays are actually in the family of corvids. Uh, Corvids would consist of like your crows, for example, so American crows here in the U.S., Uh, ravens. It also includes the other jays that are on the West Coast, but also jackdaws and magpies. Just some really amazing and intelligent birds. Probably just the the smartest that you could think of. Um, Although I shouldn't say that because there's been maybe more research done on those species than some others. They're very intelligent because they can uh, do things where, you know, and it's not been fully documented yet, but, you know, be able to use Uh, their environment to their advantage. Um, And when I say that, it's almost like tool use. Um, And that hasn't really been documented yet in blue jays, Um, although there have been some suggestions with some in-house studies showing that maybe they tried to use some different tools to try to get more food access. Um, But it definitely just shows that they are um, very smart and adapting, and they're very adaptable to urban settings, which is why we see them around in our backyards pretty often. Um, You probably have seen blue jays at your feeders, bright blue birds, amazing. They are absolutely gorgeous, um, but they are also kind of known as bullies. They are known to mimic other bird calls, to scare them away from a feeder so that, you know, they get full access to the food. Um, They're also known uh, for mimicking other calls like hawk calls to evade predation, which I think is also really, really neat. So if you ever hear a red-tailed hawk, make sure it's not a blue jay because it could actually be that. When we have them in a rehabilitation center, um, they might mimic other species that are with us in, you know, in care. They might also have trouble um, adapting because they are so smart that they get way too used to the situation that they're in. So when we have corvids or specifically blue jays in our rehabilitation center, we have to do a really good job of keeping them isolated from uh, other species. We only house them by themselves, meaning not singly, but with their own kind. So this group of three blue jays were together all summer long. Um, we try to minimize our interaction, trying to, you know, disguise ourselves if we have to come in to feed them, um, but also providing them with a lot of mental stimulation and enrichment. And enrichment is incredibly important for rehabilitators, um, specifically for certain species like blue jays. Um, And it's something that, and I'll give you some context here, um, enrichment is important um, not only for patients in rehabilitation for a short amount of time, but also for those that might be in care or in captivity for a long time. So the AZA, which is the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, does have a whole enrichment kind of category, and they have a definition for it. Enrichment that we use for our blue jays, um, it's the process of improving or enhancing that animal's environment and their care within the context of their inhabitants, behavioral biology, and natural history. So what we try to do is to enhance their welfare in care, in rehabilitation, by providing them with lots of mental stimulation and enrichment that they might naturally find in the wild. So when we provide them with foods, for example, we try to include kind of trickier ways for them to access food. Whole nuts, for example, are really tricky and hard for them to open, but blue jays are great about cracking nuts because they have a big, strong beak. Providing them with food maybe trapped in ice cubes. Um, So sometimes we'll make different ice cube trays full of berries and worms and nuts and things that would actually take them a little bit longer to be able to access and give them time to be able to learn how to forage, how to find that food, Um, at a higher difficulty than just giving them a tray of food. 
So it takes them time to be able to actually find it, to figure out how to, to get it. We even have gone as far as to hide food inside of log crevices or into like hollow pieces of wood so that maybe they have to struggle to get it out. Maybe you take a hollow piece of wood and you stuff it with some pieces of meat or bugs um, or berries, some really yummy foods, and then you try to stuff that with leaves or other natural enrichment so they have to figure out like a puzzle how to get that food out from the center. So those are just small examples of some of the minimal enrichment that we might be able to provide. But we also do things like changing up their environment and only little by little because blue jays and corvids are known to be actually scared of brand new things being introduced into their environment if they've been there for a while. So, you know, it might be slight. Maybe we only provide one extra branch here or there, um, maybe change up a different placement of some things just so that we don't overwhelm them in the environment, but that we still provide them with something new and interesting. Other things about blue jays, if you didn't know, they're also one of the, this is just like my cool fact for the day, one of the species that does something called anting, where they actually are a few of the songbirds that eat ants, and ants are really yucky, apparently, uh, and they actually produce some sort of acid that will coat um, on the outside of them to make them taste really bad so that they survive uh, from predation. Uh, well, blue jays are really cool. They will take ants and rub them all over their feathers to get rid of that acid before they actually eat them. So that's just another example to show you how cool and how interesting blue jays are, how smart they are at adapting to get their own food in the environment. So definitely favorite foods, we will give them lots of crickets, lots of worms, and then all of the other natural foods that they might find here in our state. So a really great species, really fun to rehabilitate, very, we have to be very, very careful about how we rehabilitate them, how much enrichment we give them, and how um, isolated we have to keep them from other species, just because of how intelligent they are, but also trying to keep them uh, protected because they can definitely harass or bully other species as well. So that's a little bit about blue jays and our corvids. Uh, we were happy to say that we released all of our blue jays this year. That was so much fun. Um, and hopefully you get the chance to see them around in your yard. If you have any questions about wildlife or blue jays in general, give us a call at 608-287-3235. And this has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.51 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Breaking news. The Milky Way galaxy is broken. Thankfully, WORT's resident astronomers, the radio astronomy crew that is, assure us that the break is minor and nothing to be nothing is to be worried about. For the diagnosis, we pass the mic to radio astro crew member Rark Habecker. Have you ever broken your arm? If yes, then you have something in common with the Milky Way galaxy. This is Radio Astronomy on WORT 89.9, and I'm Rourke, your host for today. 
A recent letter to the editor published in the scientific journal Astronomy and Astrophysics shares evidence for a high-pitch angle structure in the Milky Way's Sagittarius arm. To better understand this discovery, we'll have to learn about galactic structure and the Milky Way's spiral arms. But the gist is, astronomers found a structure of nebulae which sticks out of one of the Milky Way's spiral arms. So the Milky Way has a broken arm. The first big idea to understand is that the galactic disk has multiple arms which spiral around its center. While a spiral is a well-known shape, there is a variable which determines how tightly wound the spiral is around its center. This variable is known as pitch angle. A high pitch angle, close to 90 degrees, would mean the spiral is barely a spiral. It looks more like lines just sticking straight out from the center. For low pitch angles, like the 13 degrees estimated for the Milky Way's arms, the spiral lines almost make complete circles around the center. Measuring the pitch angle of each spiral arm is important because the spiral arms tell us the location of stars and gas in the galaxy. Galaxies are extremely dynamic environments, and the motion of stars and gas determines how structure changes. In fact, a common accepted model for spiral arm movement views the arm as a traffic jam. The model assumes there are spiral density waves in the distribution of stars and gas. Just like cars in a traffic jam, some are caught up and stopped, and others are getting to move forward. The traffic jam itself snakes backward along the road. Similarly, the spiral arm moves through the stars at a different speed than the stars themselves are moving. In an effort to better understand these dynamics, a team of astronomers started looking at data from the Gaia mission and the Spitzer Catalog of Young Stellar Objects. Robert Benjamin, a professor at UW-Whitewater, is the second author of this study. Professor Benjamin was involved in the data analysis, which combined the Gaia and Spitzer data, eventually helping to identify a new structure in the Sagittarius arm of the Milky Way. Before we look at the team's conclusions, let's clarify something. Our sun is in a spiral arm astronomers label as the Orion arm. Looking inward towards the center of the Milky Way, the first other spiral arm we see is the Sagittarius arm. While it is a minor arm, meaning it has a lower density of stars, it is still a significant part of the Milky Way's structure. In the Sagittarius arm, Professor Benjamin and the team, which includes collaborators from California, Massachusetts, Spain, and France, found a new structure. The structure is made of stars from nebula, the birthplaces of stars. In plotting out the structure, it cuts across the Sagittarius arm, beyond the width of the arm in either direction. Extrapolating the structure to draw a new spiral would give a large pitch angle of 56 degrees. However, the structure does not constitute a whole new spiral arm. Instead, it is closer to structures known as spurs. These objects depart from the overall structure of a galactic arm. While this structure is not exactly a spur, since it stretches across the entire Sagittarius arm, it is an interesting discovery which challenges our current understanding of the Milky Way's structure. This is part of the reason the discovery was published as a letter to the editor. A more detailed article will come in the future, but a short letter allows other scientists to learn about the discovery. Maybe a different group will come up with a physical explanation of the formation of this structure. We'll let you know if someone figures out how this broken arm came to be. But until then, be careful and don't go breaking your arms. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a stellar week. 
And that does it for our show. Thanks so much for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporter tonight was Nate Weggehout. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy Crew, and the editorial staff at The Daily Cardinal. Jonah Chester produced this newscast. Dave Lorenzen engineered the show this evening. And Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the Spanish language news from N. Nuestro Patio. Good night.